Let's read from God's word as we turn to the book of Exodus and we read together Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Too many Christians, sadly, foolishly neglect the Old Testament. If we're tempted to do that, we need to hear a verse like Romans 15, verse 4. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So the writings of the Old Testament, what was written uh, in the past, is of great spiritual value. It's designed to give us hope. Or again, uh, we can hear the risen Christ. He meets with disciples in Luke 24, uh, 27. And there we are told, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Moses and all the prophets, of course, including the whole of the Old Testament, but the books of Moses are included. 
what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So the whole of the Old Testament testifies to the Messiah. It all points to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's crucial for understanding his work. I trust in recent times, as we worked our way in a number of series through the book of Genesis, you'll have seen something of how that is the case in the first book of the Bible. But it isn't only in Genesis, of course. Very significant at his transfiguration, when Jesus for a moment let something of his transcendent glory shine forth, he discusses with Moses and Elijah. Interesting, Moses was there in the Mount of Transfiguration. He discusses with Moses and Elijah what we are told in Luke 31. Literally, uh, we're told he uh, discussed his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. A fascinating use of the word exodus to describe there the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically his death on the cross. It is an exodus. So we have ample warrant from those texts and many more we could have mentioned for turning our attention to the book of Exodus. Uh, And this evening we were beginning uh, a series of studies in Exodus. Uh, How far we'll go in this series, I have no idea at the moment, but the Lord knows, and no doubt he'll tell me when I've gone uh, far enough uh, for the time being. But we're beginning the book of Exodus, and what we're looking above all for is the Messiah, to see Christ, to see the saving work of God as it's revealed in this Old Testament book. Because we come to study uh, Exodus as any part of the Old Testament as Christians. Uh, And so we don't come simply as Jewish folk might come uh, to read these books, but we come understanding who the Messiah is and where uh, these scriptures are pointing. Uh, And we'll seek as we go along uh, to see Christ and to see his work in this part of God's word. So this evening, as we begin, we're looking at Exodus chapter 1. We're looking at the whole of the chapter and our our title this evening, God Keeps His Promises. God Keeps His Promises. That is one of the things that stands out so uh, very clearly in Exodus 1. God Keeps His Promises. First thing that we see as we look uh, at the chapter uh, is blessing in Egypt, blessing in Egypt, in a place where we might well not expect there to have been blessing. Verse 1, the beginning of the book of Exodus, the first word actually is and. Now, none of the translations uh, actually puts that in, but and is the first book, the first word in the book of Exodus. What's the significance of that? Well, surely it stresses the fact that Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. Uh, The plan of God simply continues to unfold. So that, as it were, we might read uh, at the very end of uh, Genesis 50, so Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, and these are the names of the sons. It simply runs on uh, into 
Exodus. It's a reminder that what we are looking at here is the single uh, sovereign plan of a gracious God. Uh, That Exodus continues the working of God. It is the same God, the same plan, and the same purpose that are being worked out. And Exodus 1 simply flows on from Genesis 50. A sovereign, gracious God. Constantly, uh, as we work through uh, the book, we'll see a gracious and a sovereign God. And the things that will happen in Egypt, the things he will do with regard to Pharaoh, with regard to the, uh, the children of Israel, a sovereign, gracious God. Now, it begins, as uh, we saw reading uh, the first chapter, it begins with the arrival of the sons of Israel with Jacob. And you can go back to Genesis 46 to read about the arrival of Jacob and the whole family. Joseph has said, you have to come down to Egypt, you'll be safe, you'll have food, etc., etc. And so the whole uh, clan really moves down to Egypt. Uh, the work of Joseph and in the later chapters of Genesis, we looked at this in some detail, that the whole work of Joseph had been leading up to this point. This is why Joseph was sent to Egypt. Uh, it was really in the purpose of God to prepare a refuge for his family, somewhere that they would be safe and secure. Uh, and the success that Joseph enjoyed in Egypt and He ended up as uh, the second in the land after Pharaoh himself. Uh, He was at the top of society in Egypt. But the whole point of that was this was a God-given blessing that Joseph received. And it wasn't primarily for his own benefit. And that's something we had reason to stress. uh, That the blessings that Joseph received weren't primarily for Joseph or Joseph's family line. Really, in an an amazing sense, they were for the benefit of Judah and his family line. Because it would be from Judah that the Messiah would come. And so Joseph's role was to provide a safe place for Judah and his family and the rest uh, of his brothers and all their relatives. But, But Judah's the focus as far as God's plan of salvation is concerned. It's not from the family of Joseph that Jesus comes. It's from the family of Judah. And you have those wonderful words about God's providence in Genesis 50 and verse 20. It's a tremendous testimony to Joseph's faith in a sovereign God. He says, you know, you intended what you did to me for evil. And he doesn't gloss over that. The brothers did to him was evil. But, he says, God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph understood God in a wonderful way had brought all of these factors together and placed Joseph in Egypt so that the family would be safe. And ultimately from Judah's line, we know the Messiah would be born. So God is ensuring the preservation of what we can call the covenant line leading to the Messiah. Now you'll remember, I'm sure, how often in looking at Genesis and elsewhere in the Old Testament, we've asked the question, where is this going? And you'll remember the answer was always the same. It's leading to the Messiah. 
Well, I can tell you in Exodus we're going to ask the same question and we're going to give the same answer. Where's it going? It's leading to Christ. And we need to keep seeing that. How does this fit in? Because this is our spiritual history. This isn't simply some ancient history about a little Middle Eastern country that we can safely forget about. This is our spiritual history. These are our spiritual ancestors. And we can see God working in and through them. Two things to note particularly about the blessing in Egypt. The first thing is, in that phrase in verse 1, each with his family. Each with his family. I pass over that and think very little about it, but it's important. It's a reminder to us uh, that the Lord usually works in family lines, bringing successive generations into his covenant and into the place of blessing and salvation. Often that is how the Lord works. Now, that, that is no guarantee uh, that, that anybody can presume upon my parents, my grandparents were Christians, therefore I'm all right. The Bible never gives us uh, any justification for presuming on God's grace. And God can bring anybody into his covenant that he wills and chooses out of an entirely unbelieving pagan background. Think of Rahab. Think of Ruth the Moabitess. And God brings them into his family. So the phrase is used sometimes, grace doesn't run in the blood. And it doesn't. You can't presume on the fact you've Christian relatives, parents, whatever, to say, I'm all right. Nevertheless, having qualified it in that way, the fact is God does delight to work in family lines. And it's a joy when we do see one generation coming to the same faith as their parents, perhaps their grandparents, maybe back generations. But that's God's grace. It's not that those people somehow were so good they deserve to be saved. That's nonsense. It's only ever God's grace. But God does delight to work in family lines. It is a joy when we see children following the faith of their parents. That's a burden. It's a sorrow to parents when they don't see that. We know that's the case. These people in many respects were mixed spiritually, but yet they were still God's people. And we see that family principle working out in Israel. So that's the first thing about blessing in Egypt, that whole family principle. The second thing to notice about the blessing in Egypt you have in verse 6, and it's a very uh, vivid description uh, that Moses uh, gives to us. The Israelites, verse 7 rather, the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. It's almost one of those verses just bursting, isn't it? With life and growth. The Israelites multiply and multiply and the Egyptians in the end are petrified. The word that's used of the Egyptians later on when it speaks about them uh, that they loathed them. Uh, it's a very vivid word, again, Moses uses. It's, it's, the, the sight of the Israelites made the Egyptians sick. 
with anxiety and fear what these Israelites were going to do to them. And that's the the dynamic. But the Israelites are multiplying. uh, They're extremely fertile. It's an exuberant description of growth uh, that we have here. Now, no doubt one element in that was that in Egypt, there was plenty of food. There was safety. There were the conditions for raising large families. But the basic reason was simply God is keeping his promise to Israel. His covenant promise. And indeed, putting them in a land where there was food and safety and so on was God's way of fulfilling his promise. You have the promise he made in his covenant with Abraham. You have it a number of times in Genesis. One of the most striking is in Genesis 22. It's after God's provided the ram for the sacrifice. And the Lord speaks to Abraham, Genesis 22, 17. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And here it is. Here is God working out his promise to Abraham. And he repeated it to Isaac. He repeated it to Jacob. Uh, Jacob, as he was about uh, to go down into Egypt and he was anxious, wondering about the future, and God came Uh, at night to Jacob and reassured him, I'll make you a nation while you're in Egypt. God is keeping his promise. In one sense, the Israelites are simply fulfilling the mandate that was given to the human race way back in Genesis 1, be fruitful and increase in number. But there's more, much more to what's happening here in Exodus 1. God is keeping his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. There's a family line. You see that principle working out among the Israelites. God is keeping his promise. His people are flourishing. They are growing in number. The covenant people are becoming a nation. Because up until now they were really a a large family, an extended family. But during these years in Egypt, they're going to become a nation, exactly as God has said they would. And a nation from which the promised deliverer will come. And we mustn't lose sight of that. This is not just any Middle Eastern extended family or even any Middle Eastern nation. This is the people of the covenant, the people of promise. The people from whom the Saviour will be born. And God is dealing with them in a special way and a gracious way. Blessing in Egypt. Working out the family line, but particularly in keeping the promise they will multiply and grow to be a great nation. Blessing in Egypt. But then secondly we see in Exodus 1, oppression in Egypt. Oppression in Egypt. Because it doesn't all go on smoothly and happily, as we've been describing it so far. Hard times come to God's people. Verse 8. A new king arises who did not know Joseph. Uh, The NIV has who did not know about Joseph. Probably not. Uh, he very probably knew about Joseph. Because here were all these, uh, these Israelites over in Goshen. 
Uh, and it's hard to believe uh, that Pharaoh didn't know how did they get there, who was responsible for it. He would have heard uh, uh, about Jacob. Or about Joseph, rather. Now, this is some 400 years after uh, Joseph's death. There's a 400-year gap, more or less, between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. But I think the point is not that Pharaoh didn't know about Joseph, but he doesn't care about him. He's no regard uh, for Joseph's contribution to Egypt's welfare. There's no sense that these uh, Israelites uh, have come through the agency of a man who was a tremendous help to our nation, who really saved it in time of terrible famine, uh, and we ought to treat them well. No, none of that enters Pharaoh's head. Now, the, the dating of Exodus, we needn't get ourselves tied in knots about it, but it's a very controversial issue. And when exactly do these events take place? Uh, And you can read all about it if you're interested in the books and the commentaries. But it's certainly possible, uh, I think there's a strong likelihood, that that this pharaoh who's mentioned uh, in Exodus 1 uh, was an Egyptian who had been responsible for driving out uh, uh, foreign rulers of Egypt. There had been a period when people of a Semitic background had ruled Egypt. And now, I think quite probably, This pharaoh, a true blue Egyptian, if you like, had driven out the foreigners. And so it was a time probably of very strong nationalistic fervor. We are Egyptians. Who are these people? These Israelites and others. We just got rid of the bunch that were ruling us. What are these people doing here? We are Egyptians. And that would certainly fit the context uh, of Exodus 1, an upsurge of, uh, of Egyptian nationalism. Uh, it was going to look at people like the Israelites uh, with a lot of suspicion. And you see that working out, I think, in the course uh, of the chapter. Foreigners would be suspect. And of course, it's not the first or last time uh, where foreign population in a country is looked on with suspicion. And the new pharaoh certainly regards the Israelites purely as a threat Uh, He's afraid of their growing numbers. Uh, He's afraid of the potential help that they might give to enemies. Uh, Verse 9, verse 10. And yet he doesn't want to throw them out. This is the the bind in which Pharaoh finds himself. Uh, He's afraid of their growing numbers, their their potential influence, but he wants to keep their labor. Uh, He doesn't want simply to drive them out of Egypt because you're going to lose a tremendous workforce there. So he wants to keep them, but he wants to keep them down. He wants to keep them in subjection, in a powerless position, and he has to figure out a way to do that. And the initial plan he puts into practice, verse 11, he puts slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. There's building work, there's agricultural work, and the thought is that this a heavy burden will grind them down. Uh, it'll reduce the population. But at the same time, he would get useful work from them. Uh, he gains builders, builders who construct the two cities that are mentioned, Pithom and Ramesses. Uh, they were significant defensive cities in the uh, east of Egypt, uh, over in the delta where they were vulnerable to foreign invaders. 
What a good idea to get these uh, Israelites, forced labor, build these cities to defend Egypt against their enemies. So that's what Pharaoh is working on. Get the benefit of their labor, but grind them down at the same time and keep them uh, in subjection. And there's worse, of course, to come as we go on in the chapter. Ultimately, uh, he's reduced to trying to uh, bring about genocide uh, of the the Israelites uh, and destroy them by any means he can. That's often the the pattern you see where oppression leads to greater oppression uh, and to greater violence and greater evil. And eventually, as you see, he's commanding his own people to throw Israelite babies into the Nile to destroy them crocodile fodder. Several things about the oppression in Egypt that are significant that are worth noticing. And the first thing might surprise us, the first thing is that this oppression is also according to God's promise. We think God's promise is for good things, and he promised blessing in Egypt, and we've seen they received that. But he also promised hardship. He promised that things would be tough. Genesis 15, 13, God says to Abraham, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. Now, 400 is the whole period in Egypt. Uh, They weren't uh, enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But at the end of the period, they were, and God promised Abraham the Israelites are going to be oppressed. And he's keeping that promise as well. What we might say is the nice promise of blessing, he keeps that. But the promise also of hardship and trial, he also keeps. Sovereign God. And a sovereign God who is as much in control of hard times as he is of easy times. And he still is. And isn't there reassurance in that for us as his people? We tend to think of God's providence in the happy things and the good things, and that is true. And we tend sometimes to use the phrase, the good providence of God, and mean happy things. And yet the good providence of God embraces the trials and the hardships and the difficulties and the pain just as much. God is no less in control of our trials than he is of our blessings. Sometimes that's a hard lesson to learn, but it's wonderfully true. The hard times are not out of God's control. He remains sovereign. He was in Israel. He was in in Egypt for the Israelites, and he still is. So this is also God's promise, and God's keeping the promise. The second thing we need to see, and this is crucial to Exodus 1, this is part of the spiritual battle that God promised way back in the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis 3. You recall there, Genesis 3.15, it's part of God's sentence on the serpent. And he says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. What's going on? What is that all about? Well, it is God saying there will be a spiritual battle that will continue all the way through history. The seed of Satan, the seed of the serpent, those who serve him. And that's where we all start out, remember. 
The seed of the serpent will be at war with the seed of the woman. Those who trust in the Savior who will come from the line of the woman. There'll be a battle, a spiritual war going on right down through history until eventually there will come one who is supremely the seed of the woman and who will, as God says there in Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent. And it's the Messiah, it's Christ. Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel promise. The promise of a Messiah who will come and will crush the head of the serpent. But the battle between the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, will go on down through history. And that's what you see working out in the history that's written down here in our Bible. Spiritual warfare until the coming of the Messiah. At the cross, Messiah Jesus is going to win the victory over the serpent and will crush his head and will provide salvation. But where will this Messiah come from? Where will this Savior come from? He'll come from the line of Israel, from these people we're reading about in Exodus 1. That's crucial. And Satan knows enough. We don't understand fully what he understands or knows. But he knows enough to know it'll be from these people that the head crusher will come, the one who will destroy him. So what he seeks to do is try and destroy these people by any means he can. And in Exodus, he's doing it through the agency of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now, it's not that Pharaoh's conscious of that. Pharaoh doesn't sit down and say, well, now, I want to serve Satan. How can I destroy these Israelites? Of course he doesn't. But he wants to destroy the Israelites. And if he does that, he'd be doing Satan's work. No Israelites, no Messiah. No Messiah, no salvation. And you see how Satan's mind is working. Destroy these people and the whole plan of God to save sinners from Satan's grasp crumbles. And so through Pharaoh and later on through foreign rulers and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and so on, Satan constantly in this great battle tries to destroy the people of God with the ultimate goal of making sure the Messiah never comes. Of course, he is born, we know, we have it in the Gospels, and so what Satan has to try and do is turn the Messiah aside from his mission. But that's what's happening. Spiritual war is going on, an attempt to destroy the people of God. Sometimes said Satan's the most frustrated creature in the universe because whatever he does, God turns it around to fulfill his purpose. And so here, the, the, more, uh, the, the more they were oppressed, we're told, verse 12, the more they multiplied and spread. It's always like a weed, you know, try and destroy it and it spreads. And as Pharaoh tries to destroy the Israelites, they multiply and it's worse and worse. And he gets more frustrated and more desperate and more violent to try and get rid of these people. So it's God's promise. As part of the spiritual battle that's running all the way through history. And also this is part of God's pattern for his people in every age. What's the pattern? It's simply this. 
Paul puts it in these words in Acts 14, 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And that is always God's pattern. The path to glory always leads through trials. It did for Jesus. The path to glory led through the cross. And that's how it'll be for us. Entry into the final glory of the kingdom will be through trials and testing and hard and difficult times. Yes, times of blessing, but hard times as well. And we need, by God's grace, to accept trials in that spirit. If you're struggling and you're going through difficult times, remember that principle that it's not out of God's control, it is part of his plan, and it is the path for you to whatever glory he has prepared for you. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom. We'd like it to be easy. We'd like it to be a gentle stroll into the kingdom, but God doesn't plan it that way. We must pass through the trials. Blessing in Egypt. Oppression in Egypt. And then a final word, faithfulness in Egypt faithfulness in Egypt. We've seen Pharaoh's efforts to destroy the Israelites fail. So he has to intensify the effort. And verse 16, the destruction of the male children. Uh, That's to wear down the the Israelite population, destroy the males. Uh, The females, well, Egyptians can marry them and really they'll be absorbed uh, into Egyptian society much more easily doesn't need to worry about the girls. Destroy the men, the male children. The women will be assimilated in time into Egyptian society. The battle intensifies, doesn't it? Steps up significantly. First it was the hard labor, now it's the destruction of the children. And yet God has his faithful servants in the midst of this situation, the Hebrew midwives, Verse 15. Uh, probably Sifra and Pua were, uh, as it were, the, uh, the, the overseers of the midwives. Hard to imagine there are only two of them for this huge Israelite population. Crisis of conscience for them, of course. What are they going to do? Do they obey Pharaoh? Do they disobey? Maybe lose their lives. They could easily have done so. Of course, as many uh, medics even today have to face uh, these issues of conscience with regard uh, to life. What direction will they go? What path is the path of obedience to God? What is most significant for them? To these midwives, the choice is clear. It isn't really a choice for them. They feared God, we're told, and did not do what Pharaoh commanded. Verse 17. Now, they might have lost their lives. I think it's the hand of God upon them that keeps them alive. Imagine they defied Pharaoh. They said, we're not going to do it. And they might well have been executed. Now they offer a a reason of sorts for why the boys are still being born. Hebrew women, not like Egyptians. They're vigorous and so on. Maybe there's an element of truth in it. Maybe there wasn't. But of course, Scripture would seem to indicate that we don't owe the truth to those who would use it to destroy life. Rahab's another uh, example of that. Whether what they said had truth in it or not, they're not going to obey 
Pharaoh. They will obey God. Principle spelled out for us, of course, in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Now, the cost could have been very high. It could have been their lives. But they will be faithful to God, whatever the cost. They'll be faithful to his command. And the result for them is blessing. Now, if they had been executed, we couldn't say, well, God shouldn't have let that happen. But they were spared. God was kind. He gave them families, we're told, verse 20 and 21. That's not saying, if you obey God, it'll always be easy. If you obey God, you'll never really get into trouble. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing the fiery furnace. And they said, look, Nebuchadnezzar, God can deliver us. But if he doesn't, we'll still not obey you. And in a sense, the Hebrew midwives are saying the same. If God doesn't deliver us, if we have to lay down our lives, we're not going to obey you. Because we must obey God rather than men. I haven't read Acts 5, but that's exactly the principle that they're acting on. Faithfulness in Egypt. It was by grace. Two women standing up to one of the greatest rulers of the day, refusing to obey his command because it was contrary to God's law. And God blesses faithfulness. How he does it is up to him. He may bless us when we're faithful with success and promotions and all sorts of things, or he may not. But he will bless spiritually. God's no man's debtor. If you're faithful to God and to God's commands, he will bless in whatever way he sees to be best. Faithfulness in a very difficult environment. Encouragement to us as we feel pressures from time to time to compromise our faith and our commitment to the Lord. We're called to be faithful. And God will honor that. Principle spelled out in Scripture, those who honor me, I will honor. He did it for Shifra and Pua. He's done it for his people down through the ages and he'll keep doing it. We're called to faithfulness. Here is a sovereign, gracious God at work, blessing in Egypt. Oppression in Egypt, both promised by God, by his grace, faithfulness in Egypt. The God who enabled them to be faithful in their day can enable us to be faithful whatever challenges he brings to us in our day.